Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about great books in the Western canon. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Dr. Junius Johnson. Well, Junius, it is our first time recording in 2024. How was your Christmas break, your New Year's, and uh, the beginning of this year? Yeah, we had a wonderful Christmas tide. We we keep to this old ways of celebrating 12 days, and so it's 12 mm-hmm. days of feasting at our house, which is always one of my favorite times of year. And we got to be home in our own space this year, which was um, also extra special. So the kids are at an age where it's really, everything's really sweet and they're really into all the stuff going on. So it was really refreshing time. That's excellent. That's excellent. It was kind of similar for us too. The boys are, our, our oldest is five, our youngest is three. So it was the first year where they both were kind of really involved in all, everything that was going on and they knew kind of more what to expect. And it was, it was just, it was a ton of fun. Yeah, and yeah, 12, nice. 12 days is the way to go. It's a fee. It's a it's a season, not a day. That's right. Love it. Well, what are you uh, working on reading outside of the classical mind? I am deep in Augustine right now. Um, I'm prepping to do some recording, um, teaching on three of Augustine's major works: the Confessions, the uh, On Christian Doctrine, and the City of God. And so I am going back through those texts again and getting my notes ready for for teaching and whatnot. And it's been it's been a lot of fun. But man, that guy does go on. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of works there. That's awesome. I am uh, I have been in Dante for the past Ooh. really all of last semester and and all of this semester at my church. We're doing a, a Divine Comedy study, and yeah. so we're kind of about halfway through Purgatory right now. And uh, so that's been a lot of fun. I um, have enjoyed it. A lot of the people in our in our group who are going through it, it's their first time ever encountering yeah. the text. Um, few of them read it like way back in college or, or read parts of it, but n- never actually gone through the whole thing. So that's been a ton of fun. And it's been a great way to kind of converse about certain theological ideas and topics and stuff. So it's it's been a lot of fun. But um, yeah. maybe maybe someday we'll have to do uh, at least one of the Divine Comedies. Uh, on behalf of the listeners who uh, all want to know this, what translation are you guys using? Uh, I use Mendelbaum. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a good translation. Um, I We have a couple people in the class who have different translations. I never standardize translations, really. Um, I kind of take the St. John's College approach of, like, you just kind of get your own. And um, So we've got a, a, one person using Dorothy Sayers. Mm-hmm. We have a few others. I think one was using, um, oh, what's his name? He wrote, he's still alive. Um, oh, yeah. Esselin. Um, uh, yes, Esselin. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. And so we've got a few others, but most people bought the Mindelbaum because it's uh, the notes and it gives us a kind of a common text. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's been it's been good. It's been good. Great. Well, today we are going to be talking about Aristotle. I believe this is our first Aristotelian work. We've done mm-hmm. a couple Platonic works, but we're going to be discussing the Nicomachean Ethics. And uh, very excited. A lot about virtue and and happiness and friendship, I think, are some of the topics we're really interested in covering. But before we get in, Junius, do you want to explain kind of the, the numbering system in texts like this? We, we were talking about this. We've done the Platonic Dialogues, which uses a similar kind of numbering system, but it's not it, the dialogues we've covered have not been long enough to really warrant using the the numberings. Yeah. So, if you know, whatever copy of Aristotle you have, if you look in the, in the size, you'll see these numbers running along. And, uh, for example, the Nicomachean Ethics begins at 1094. Um, and those are those are pages in this sort of larger 
collection of all of Aristotle's works. And they'll sort of say 1094A, and then you'll have these line numbers going down. And if you're counting, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and then 1094B, and it'll go on up to E, and then it'll switch over to 1095. If you're counting the line numbers, there will not always be five lines between the five on the side, because that's trying to give you the approximation of where that is in the original text. And so what these, what these are is a way of referencing a passage that is more precise than a page number, because you can narrow down to within a line or two of any translation you pick up by saying, okay, in 1094A5, it says this, right? Um, now, because this is such a long text and because there are so many different versions of it out there, and Father Wesley and I are using two different versions, um, I'm kind of locked into the one that I'm using because it has my underlining in it, uh, we will identify passages in that way. So, for example, the, it begins at 1094A1, and if you were to turn over, um, for me to turn over a page, um, it gets to 1094B, and so I might say 1094B5, which will be a few lines down from where it says 1094B. So you should be able to find where we are pretty easily in your edition by doing that. And um, that's also the, the, the accepted way to reference it. If you were writing about it formally for any reason, you would cite it that way and not according to book and chapter or page number or anything like that. Very, very similar to the uh, sort of chapter and versification of the Bible or something, you know, it helps us right. to have better discussion about the text because we uh, can all turn, to, even if you're using a different translation of the Bible, you still can turn to the same verse and discuss it. That's right. Well, um, to kind of begin our conversation, we might uh, want to ask the very easy, simple question, what is happiness? What does it mean <laughs> for us to be happy as as human beings? This seems to be kind of the beginning point uh, of, of where Aristotle wants to begin is, is what is good? What is happiness? These kind of big questions. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth saying as we, you could, I don't know if this is a stalling tactic or not. You can decide after I finish saying it. But uh, it's worth saying that, you know, why does it have such a weird name? Um, and it's because it was Aristotle dedicated to Nicomachus, who is either his son or his father. Um, not that we don't know whether Nicomachus was, but both of them were called Nicomachus. Um, and so this is a book that he presented to a close family member with the expectation that it would help them to live life better, right? And so this is a very, very practical book um, in Aristotle's mind. This is Aristotle's version of a practical book anyway. Um, and so this question of what is happiness, it's not uh, it's not a theoretical question in the first instance. It's a, or and if it is a theoretical question, it's only theoretical because Aristotle thinks that theory is going to be the path to a fulfilled life, right? That contemplation is the highest end of a human being, which we'll come to later on. So, so this is, you know, don't think about a philosopher up in his ivory tower um, wondering what happiness is and, and that sort of a thing. This is somebody who is embroiled in the life, in human life, and who is presenting this to, um, family member who is not uh, certainly not an ivory tower type person. Hmm. That is, I think, one of the things I appreciated about the text is the way in which it is very pragmatic. You could, in a sense, use this almost like a self-help book, though it's not maybe as shallow as most self-help literature that we have today. In fact, perhaps this would be a good thing to give someone who's interested in kind of self-help type stuff. It's like, hey, you want to be a better person? Read, start here. 
That's right. Yeah, have something actually meeting to grow. Because because in a sense, what you turn to for self-help confesses what type of thing you believe you are. Right. If if you can be helped by horoscopes or platitudes or advice columns, then you're you're saying you don't have a very high opinion of yourself. And that's where we have to go back to Boethius and the constellation of philosophy, which I know you guys talked about before I came on. When ladies' philosophy's big criticism of Boethius is you've forgotten what you are. Mm-hmm. Right? The type of thing you are. So so yeah, this is a great um, if you're looking to improve yourself or get over your moral problems, uh, Aristotle's got some advice for you. How how um, actionable it is um, and how high the bar is, is something that we will have to get into because it turns out that um, happiness is um, almost a biblically high standard in Aristotle's looking at it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, and in fact, I think the way you just said that is a really helpful introduction to his thoughts on goodness and happiness because you said where we turn tells us about what we think about ourselves. And that is certainly true to discuss what is happiness and what is good in terms of human interaction and and in human development. We have to ask the question. And and this is the question he asks in 1097 B around 2025 is what is the function of a human being? Mm -hmm. How we, how we think about, what we were made to be and to do will inform what is the answer to happiness. Yeah. Which is why you can, I mean, in Boethius, he has to be disabused of certain notions about happiness, right? It's not in your money. It's not in your power. It's not in even necessarily life itself. It's got to be something else. Yeah, that's right. And so we come to, we're at 1098, um, a, around six or so, the proper function of man then consists in an activity of the soul in conformity with a rational principle, or at least not without it. Um, and he goes on to talk about this for a bit. And then so down just around us uh, 12, he says, in other words, the function of the harp is to play the harp. The function of the harpist who has high standards is to play it well, <laughs> right? You don't want a bad harp player. And so that we winds it up down in uh, 16, the good of man is an activity of the soul in conformity with excellence or virtue. And if there are several virtues in conformity with the best and most complete virtue. So that's, that's not what happiness is, but that's the good of man. And that is that by reaching that, that would be how you become happy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm so rem- I'm small, rem- you know, no big deal. Just, you know, um, you've just got to act in a in a in an intellectual fashion in accordance with excellence or virtue easy it's so easy i'm reminded of a time when i uh, right after i graduated college i wanted to get into hockey like playing hockey and mm. so i went and bought pads and everything and i went and started playing pickup hockey but i was really bad i yeah. ice skating was not something i did a lot of growing up so i played a pickup game at uh, the school where i went uh, for college and uh, there were some club players playing and including some who were on the women's club team. Mm. And I was on a team with one of these women and she got so annoyed at playing with me. She just decided to leave in the middle <laughs> of the game. <laughs> in other words, I, we were all there playing hockey, but she was an excellent player who wanted to play excellently. <laughs> and I'm just a guy who's not uh, <laughs> playing excellently at all. 
And so she just decided to leave. It wasn't worth her time. <laughs> Can't blame her. That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really, it's a really good point Aristotle's making here. Um, it always feels weird to say that. It's like, yeah, it's Aristotle. Um, that you could do the function, the proper function of man, right? You can perform activities of the soul in conformity with a rational principle, or at the very least, you know, this is interesting, at least not without it. It, it doesn't have to be conformed to the rational principle to be the a human activity, but if there's no rational principle at all, if it's pure instinct, that's not a human activity, that's an animal activity. And humans can do animal activities, right? We can fail to act as humans, and we're going to see later on, we can also act as something greater than humans. We can act divinely. Um, so, you know, anyone, any human can attain to this proper function, um, but you might not do it well. You, you might wind up being a bad harpist or Father Wesley playing hockey all those years ago. <laughs> I, I'm not going to assume that he's still bad at hockey. He may No, be I, I'm probably worse now. <laughs> I'm older now, so I... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. And this is why in the Divine Comedy, interestingly, you know, the way that Dante arranges hell, the mm. the vices or sins that are have more in common with the animal instincts are higher up in hell. In other words, they're not as severely punished as yeah. the ones that do require a perversion of the intellect. So right. lust and gluttony, they're, those are kind of up higher, but... You know, you get down and you get into fraud or um, or being a traitor or something like that. And that that really is uh, is considered some of the worst sins yeah. for Dante. And I, I think there's definitely something in common with Aristotle here that, yeah, this is what sets us apart. You know, my dog and I both eat, but my dog doesn't sit around thinking, what should I, I how can I be an ethical consumer of dog food, you know, or something <laughs> like that? Or what kind of food do I need to eat if I want to achieve peak physical fitness? Uh, right. That just won't occur because they're not rational, at least as far as we can tell. Yeah, that's right. Like Wittgenstein says, if a lion could speak, we couldn't understand it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, what it won't do to underestimate how obvious it was for all pre modern peoples, so with ancients and medievals alike that um the rational is the highest part of existence um it's the highest part of creation which means that angels and humans uh, and demons are set higher above things that don't have rationality but because god or the gods are themselves rational it's the highest part of existence as it were right um you could maybe make an argument in plato that if the the forms are the forms may not have be endowed with consciousness but um, I would respond that in Plato, they're eminently rational, though. I mean, that they're the very source of rationality uh, and whatnot. Um, it's so. This is very interesting. When I was in when I was in divinity, no, when I was in graduate school, um, I was asked to TA a course with um, Professor John Hare, who is a great, great philosopher of religion, um, and he had come up with this course that was called the Theology of Plato and Aristotle. Um, and it was, of course, packed out um, because of who it was, but also because, you know, these guys are foundational and they're foundational theologically. So was, I was very curious, you know, coming into this thing as a TA, having read these texts, I was like, so what is he, how's he going to distinguish the theology from the philosophy of these guys? And, and the very first lecture of the class, his argument was essentially that all Greek philosophy is theology. Mm. Um, and the principle he pointed to to ground this is that when you look at the first principles of the Greek philosophers, they are intellectual, they're intelligent, they are, they are conscious, 
right? Um, and so those things, whatever they are, from the pre-Socratics all the way through Aristotle, are uh, are gods. And even if they're not the Greek gods per se, um, the discourse about them would be a theological discourse, right? Um, and so yeah, this is this is deeply ingrained in Western society. It was it was a long-standing, deep tradition even before Christianity came aboard. And then Christianity is going to reaffirm it when it takes the scene um, midway through the Roman Empire. So, or at the, at the at the beginning of the Roman Empire, I should say. So this is not to be underestimated how much. And that's not to say that bodily things don't matter, and you can just do whatever you want to with your bodies and whatnot. Because you know, in Dante, the the first circle of the damned is the lustful and they're still damned right they're still under the sign that says abandon all hope you're done right they're still bad but the type of damage they do to the world and to your own soul is less than the intellectual sense yeah 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 i we have a hymn in our hymnal that we sing at my church that uh there's a whole it's called praise god who spoke through man and mm. the first verse is about the prophets from the Old Testament, but the second verse is about praise God who spoke through man through Plato and Socrates, who testified <laughs> to truth unchanging, um, which is, I think, a really cool and exactly in line with what you're saying, that they're doing a kind of theological work. Um, and, and it also, I think in 1098, be right around maybe uh, 10 to 15 um, there, mm -hmm. he is he is making a distinction between kinds of goods mm -hmm. which ties to what you're saying it's not that the body doesn't matter it's that bodily goodness is of a lesser significance ultimately than goods of the soul the yeah. goods of the soul are the most fully good they're the yeah. highest goods yeah um whereas the goods of the body can sometimes, I mean, uh, the way this gets incorporated, I think, in the Christian tradition is that um, we teach ourselves how to fast. Mm. Fasting, because, I mean, we teach ourselves how to feast too, but, and you kind of have to do both. But by learning that rhythm of fasting and then feasting and fasting and then feasting, we're learning the kind of moderation between the two. We're learning how to actually enjoy both, yeah. how to properly enjoy food. Um, but in other words, the body is serving a, a bigger purpose. Mm. Which is the good of the soul? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and the the bodies and, and he'll. This is a bit where he can agree with Plato, right? I mean, the the goods of the body are good are best when they are ordered to the higher goods, the goods of the soul. Um, and, and, and the good of the soul is more enduring than the good of the body because you can eat a really good meal, but you'll be hungry again in four or five hours. Right. Or you can have you know a fulfilling intimate relationship, but again, it, it goes away. Yeah. Whereas if you're brave that doesn't go away it, it, it lasts it's it's yeah. who you are in a way that the bodily pleasure is not because it's fleeting yeah that's good um we're gonna have to talk about habits um yes yes well in fact we might want to we might want to just rehash that goodness is sort of this thing that towards which we strive our success in achieving the good is what we would call happiness, the result of the achievement. Um, and so then, yeah, how do we achieve the good is the question. Yeah, and habit right. would be the answer. And and one of the things on the way to habit, we should mention um, that there's something, a, a feature of Aristotle that's, that's really commonly noted and is important is that um, happiness or blessedness, maybe we ought to say, 
um, it has to be enduring. It's not a, a fleeting thing. Um, and it, you know, it goes so far as to say that if you see someone and they appear to be blessed, um, don't call them blessed. Yeah. It's too soon, right? Wait a second. Because you could come upon Oedipus in the third year of his reign in Thebes and think, this dude, the gods love this dude. He's highly favored. What a fortunate, happy man. Um, but the end of the story, um, his life is a tragedy at the end of the day. And all of the bliss that he experienced with his mother wife um, gets undone the moment he finds out that she is, in fact, his mother. Right. Um, and so Aristotle, who for whom Oedipus is the perfect play, right, <laughs> he's sensible of this. And he wants to say that um, this is not just a an instance of it's not it's not as though he was happy in this strong sense for that one time and then he lost it and something else happened. Something that can be lost in that way doesn't deserve to be called happiness. Right. Yeah. And so the only way to know that he really is happy is to know for sure that he's never going to lose it. And for us mortals, that means call no one happy until they're dead. And even then, maybe wait a little while because you might want to wait to see how it turns out with their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids. That's and right. you also That's you you also just reminded me we have done Aristotle before because we read Poetics in conjunction with Oedipus Rex. So I was thinking I, that when I said it. I was like, wait a minute. Culpa, <laughs> mea culpa, mea maxima culpa on that. My fault. I have forgotten that as well. That's right. And especially because your kleos, your fame, your glory is so tied up in your immediate generation of your children and their grandchildren that um you know someone could if, you, if your son is an absolute horrible reprobate then people will look on you with pity and say oh it's a shame he deserved a better son and your and your fame is lessened and you might not call that person happy after the fact even though they've been dead for a while and don't know anything about it so that's a, that's a really true point this is an important um this is going to come up a lot in a lot of different ways across the Western canon. Um, it's going to seep into Christianity even with the notion of, um, you know, with with election. You say, well, what happens if if you have a strong doctrine of divine election that you're chosen by God for salvation and that doesn't really depend on you? What happens if that person turns out to fall away from the faith, right? And you say, well, that means that they were never really elect in the first place. You you decided too quickly that they were elect, or you know, is salvation justification? the moment when you say a prayer or get baptized or whatever, or is salvation the end process of sanctification, right? Are you saved now or are you being saved out of the world? These are the kinds of discussions that will happen that are all to, to some extent uh, indebted to what Aristotle was saying about happiness here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in order to get to happiness, you have to have the right habits. Yeah. Which we might define as dispositions of the soul, right? Yeah. A, a habit is a, is an orientation towards something. So someone who uh, has the habit of taking a shower regularly, brushing their teeth a couple times a day, you know, you can say their soul is disposed towards being of good hygiene. Yeah. Whereas somebody who doesn't do those things, you know, maybe they have a, a lower view of hygiene, right? Um, yeah. Maybe so in other right exactly. So in other words, um, there are habits which are unseen, mm -hmm. and then there's actions which are kind of the data which, if you piece together, you get a picture of the of the actual habit of the person. Yeah, exactly right. This is this is a good. Uh, that's really good. Um, 
this notion of habits is going to be really important in medieval um, discussions of um, ethics and virtue and whatnot. And and I'll, they'll use the Latin word habitus, which will get translated habits sloppily, I think, by translators, mm-hmm. um, because what is really it's, it's good. The best translation, exactly what you're saying, disposition um, to be to 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 be oriented in a certain way. And so if it's you know someone who is um, an irascible person. Um, is someone who is prone to get angry. And so we all know people like this. Um, they get It takes less to make them angry than it does other people. Um, it's very easy to fall and get on their bad side and set them off and, um, and that sort of a thing. The proneness to anger is the habit. And so it's not habit in the sense of um, it's some self-conscious thing that just you just do all the time, like, you know, twitching your fingers or uh, fidgeting or something like that. It's rather that um, it's like there's a groove worn in the road of Mm -hmm. your soul by the wagon passing over it a bunch of times. And so if you if you're trying to ride a bike down a road that has these grooves in it it's actually easiest to ride in the groove because otherwise it's to keep going over it and, and it's just very difficult to do. That's what happens with your soul. And the important part of that account is that how did the grooves get there? They got there because the wagon kept going over the same spot over and over again, right? So the habits of, that are the virtues or the habits that are their opposites, the vices, are formed by content, consistently doing the actions of virtue or the actions of vice. And so in a really real way, you could connect this to what C.S. Lewis says when he says if you if you go to church and you don't feel very pious and, and all these other sorts of things, act as if you did. Do the things you would do if you did feel pious, and eventually the feeling will catch up to it. The great Anglican um, ascetical theologian Martin Thornton has a, a great book called Christian Proficiency, which is about how the how the average lay Christian should kind of arrange their spiritual life. And he says, sometimes doing morning and evening prayer is like cleaning your car. It's mm. not exciting. You have you just kind of have to do it. Um, and as you as you do it, you may come to enjoy it more, you know. And I think he's got a, a good point there that it's not always the most exciting. I will say though, one thing that's helpful about Aristotle's approach and the way it gets integrated, I think, into the Christian tradition and what we now would call virtue ethic mm. is really helpful because I, I, I once heard some Lutherans talking about this and they said virtue ethic is the least legalistic ethic because <laughs> it allows some room for being human, that mm-hmm. there's not always a one size fits all solution, that there's not always a standard of what bravery looks like in every situation where it's really clear Uh, how to be brave. So you have to use your own discernment and prudence in order to be able to deploy the virtues in a context. So it may be that um, I'm called to be brave by not engaging in a conflict with someone, you know, right. In one case, it's the same thing. The Proverbs do this, right? There's the one proverb that says answer a fool in his folly. And then the next one says, don't answer a fool in his folly. (laughs) And it's not a contradiction. It's just saying, Hey, you have to use wisdom when you're engaging with people. And sometimes it's worth, you know, really talking to them and, and, you know, presenting the truth. And sometimes it's better to just let them kind of go on their own rabbit trail, you know? And, um, and so I, I, but I always appreciate that about Aristotle. I find it much more human than something like a, like maybe a Kantian approach to ethics or something like that, you know, where it's all about duty. Um, again, there's something there, but you know, we should do our duties, but there's a kind of unfeelingness that is almost, um, right. inhuman. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and this is, this is where yeah, you, I mean, I think Aristotle does such a good job of making the distinction between there are, I was looking for the passage, I'm not finding it. There are things that are, um, 
just just or virtuous in themselves. And then there are things that are just or virtuous in relation to us. And in that kind of a context, you've got to figure out what it is for you, right? And, and then you're gonna see that applied throughout this book. That's where you have this, this one of the best parts of this book is one we won't really talk about um, because you just need to go experience it. It's the these sort of uh, triads of states that you can be in relative to the various virtues where he shows you this is you know to have too much, to have too little, and then here's the mean. And he kind of goes through all these things and shows that. And what that means, what that requires is this kind of practical judgment that recognizes um, how to manage um, when to apply that rule and when to not apply that rule, right? Moderation in all things, including moderation. Yeah. Yeah. I had an experience recently where I was doing this. I, so I go to confession. I try to go to confession weekly and I was confessing my list and I was adding context in ways that made myself sound as bad as possible. And I didn't even really like, I wasn't, I didn't like catch that I was doing this, but the priest actually stopped me about halfway through and was like, stop. You're, you're good at naming the vice and identifying it. And then you're just like adding all this extra stuff that, you know, you're beating yourself up. Basically I'm committing the vice of excess, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going over, over the board. I'm being yeah. scrupulous. Now I could fall into the vice of deprivation, which is being lax, but mm -hmm. that wasn't my problem that day. Uh, it was the other. So he said, Hey, just go. <laughs> he yeah, didn't let me finish. <laughs> just go. And um, that was good to be reminded that I was moving too far in one direction. And so the solution was to kind of give me the opposite so yeah. that I could find this balance in, in between two extremes. That's right. Because a lot of times, you know, we fall into this dualistic thinking so easily. Um, I, I think it's the, a result of the fact that we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so our knowledge became dualistic. Not that the world is dualistic, but we tend to interpret it dualistically. And so we look at something like pride and we think, okay, so there's pride and the opposite of pride is humility. And so pride is self-aggrandizement and thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. And so humility is thinking of yourself more lowly than you ought yep. to. Yep. Uh, and the reality is, that is as much a disorder of whatever the underlying thing is that pride and humility apply to as pride is. Humility is the mean between those yep. two things. Neither thinking of yourself too highly nor too lowly, but just thinking of yourself exactly as you ought to. Yes. Which, yes. don't worry, will be low enough if you're seeing clearly. Yes, yes. And there's a degree, I, it at least touches on on magnanimity and, and pusillanimity, you know, the, the yeah. idea of smallness versus greatness of soul. Like, as a human being with rational faculties who's been given certain gifts, like you are called to something great. Yeah. And and you shouldn't shy away from those things either. Like it's it actually is a, a lie to yourself to say, well, I'm not gifted in any way. Right. Um, no, you right. are. And and you should be honest about that. And it, it actually is good to be honest about that, to say, no, this is the way I'm wired and to then go with the grain. Yeah. Um, and so right. some of us have dispositions naturally aimed towards some virtues and then naturally that aim at the excess or deprivation of virtues. So figuring out, so there, there may be areas where as a, as a listener, you read Aristotle's list of, of the virtues and their corresponding vices and you find yourself pulled towards the virtue. And then you, on others, you say, Oh no, I'm definitely, definitely here in excess or here in deprivation. And, um, and so then those be can become areas in which you focus, um, in yeah. terms of your own kind of lived experience. Okay. I need to, this week I'm going to focus on, you know, attaining moderation, Mm -hmm. rather than uh rather than gluttony or um whatever the uh, uh deprivation of gluttony would be um i guess <laughs> complete abstention yeah
it, the, the kind of extreme abstinence whereby, um, you know, maybe monks in the desert were making themselves ill by not eating, right? Sure, sure. Um, so, so that is really good. So then let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about how, you, so you mentioned that you might be not find yourself naturally disposed more to vice or virtue or more likely more towards a vicious excess or a vicious defect on different things, right? And some things, excess is my temptation and some things, defect is my temptation. Um, and um, and so the question then becomes, and this is one that Aristotle is going to treat several books later, um, how natural is that? Hmm. Are you just, you know, am I just born with it? I'm just born to like this thing more than the other. And, and Aristotle wants to uh, allow that there are some things that are that way. But he says, if we say that that's the case down the line, it's going to defeat our account of virtue. Right. Um, and so what what really is the case, he thinks, is he wants to say, and this is something that is really not heard enough in our society today, I don't think, you're responsible for the condition of your soul. Right. And so, so much these days, and I think this is a, a, the gift, good or bad, of psychoanalysis, we're so interested in finding the reasons why we do the things that we do. Um, and we do this, this sort of archaeology of our past to figure out the source of our defensiveness and, and the things that make us react and get triggered and these sorts of things. And, it, and we very easily go from an account of why it's that way to the belief that it's not our fault that it's that way. And that it's, you know, maybe we want to change it, but there's no question of guilt here. Um, and, there's, and there's space for that because, you know, and, and for the victims of abuse who need to recognize that the nothing that they did makes them the reason why this happens, makes them deserve that this happened. None of that is true. But we're not talking primarily about abuse here. We're talking about the moral condition of our soul, the thing that makes me get angry too quickly when my kid is being uh, recalcitrant or the thing that makes me get, you know, um, judge too quickly other people when they do certain types of things like cut me off on the vote or something like that. It's in some of those in those moments when that happens, it can feel like you don't have agency because you're reacting according to a habit, according to a disposition. Right. And so you didn't you don't choose to get angry. You're just angry. But what Aristotle wants to say that I think is really good and really important is that. But the reason you're disposed to do that is because you acted in certain ways for a long while before that. Right. You yes. wore those grooves in your soul. And that's the thing we need to focus more attention on. And even, yeah, even in the particular case, there may be certain causes of the reaction that while the reaction was somehow ab above or maybe below uh, your rational decision, you in in choosing certain things leading up to that point, you were um, you kind of knew the direction it was going. Right. <laughs> so right. like so like it's why I'm thinking Thomas Aquinas, who says that what you do when you're drunk is not you're not particularly culpable for that act because you didn't make a rational choice because you're by drinking too much you uh, lost the ear inhibitions but you are responsible for the fact that you got drunk because you yes. chose to drink yeah. so there's still culpability there it's just you know maybe it's not down at the end of the line it's it's earlier on and it, and it and what you're talking about i think goes to classifying things as description versus prescription so it is mm -hmm. important to do the the work of the what yeah what is causing me to be like this i was just asked my spiritual director recently asked me um i 
one of the focuses of my spiritual direction lately has been finding more balance in terms of work and life. Mm. And she said, were you, I'm an Enneagram type three. I am an INTJ. I mean, I do all this work, you know, to figure out kind of who I am and uh, I'm an achiever. That's one of the bins in my personality is to achieve. Mm. She said, why are you that way? Right. So I had to Mm. do the work, you know, is this how I was born or is this, um, something that has developed. And the answer is, of course, it's a little bit of both. Like I have cousins mm-hmm. who have obsessive compulsive tendencies and I have those same tendencies. So it's there's probably something genetic there. Mm-hmm. But then the way that I was raised and then the things that I have chosen to do over time have certainly strengthened and um, inculcated certain habits in me where, yeah, it's hard for me to turn off my computer in the evening and enjoy time with my family or put a book down or whatever. Um, and so there's, it's a both and. And so the question is, now that I know the what, mm-hmm. what should I do to combat that? So like I took a retreat this past week and I didn't bring my computer and I turned my phone off and mm-hmm. I didn't bring any books and I just sat there for most of the day because um, <laughs> that's the exact opposite of my tendency. Yeah. And so then, and Aristotle will talk about that in terms of medicine later, that the medicine usually supplies what's lacking in the person. So there's opposites. So if you're going towards excess on something, you know, give yourself some deprivation. Or if you're going towards deprivation, give yourself some, you know, it, it may, if to correct yourself, you may have to go a little bit above and beyond. So there's that uh, tension. So that's, that's what maybe what you were saying made me think of is that it's very much a difference between description we have to be able to describe our tendencies but then there has to be a prescriptive element to it as well yeah um, yeah that's right um and and you know there's a lot of uh, Aristotle spends a significant portion in talking about voluntary and involuntary because that's when you're talking about virtue whether an action is virtuous or not you've got to deal with the question of that um no one thinks that you can be oh, i should say that no one but I, I don't believe anyone thinks that you can accidentally be good Right. Um, there has to be some element of choosing. If, if you're if you're not choosing, you're not yet on the moral scale. That's where that's where your dog is. Right. I mean, he doesn't make choices about doing the right thing or not. He just does whatever his appetites dictate he should do, whatever his natural habits dictate he should do. Um, and so we don't ask the question about moral or immoral behavior when we call him a good dog. Who's a good boy? That's analogical speech, right? It's it's we're speaking as if he is able to act morally, but of course he isn't. Um, and so, it, it, you know, there are ways that things, there are things that have that we do involuntarily, uh, if, in a variety of ways, whether because we're compelled to do them by someone else, or because they are below the level of our conscious choice, or something like that. And those don't come in for moral agency, but. It is, it's so insightful to ask the question, but why do you involuntarily do that? I'll give you a fun example. My brother, when we were growing up, um, he, uh, when he was in his teens, he began to sneeze in a very peculiar way. Um, instead of saying, ah, uh, chew, he would say, listeners, excuse the colorful language, ah, uh, shit. And um, <laughs> now we were not allowed to say that word around our household. Um, and, uh, my brother does this and he starts sneezing this way in front of my parents. And I was like, Oh no, what's going to happen? The hammer's going to come down. Right. Um, and there was, there was discussion around this point and it was decided that he was not 
choosing to do that, that it was involuntary. Um, and I thought shenanigans, right? He's obviously choosing to do this. Um, but as time went on, it was clear that I think he got to the point where he wasn't choosing to do it anymore. Um, and, and I think my, my parents were right to see that. And my mother was like, I just hope he doesn't sneeze in church. Um, but <laughs> but the, you know, the, the key point there was that he got to that place because he chose to do it as a funny thing and as a way of you know, playing with the boundaries of the rules. And at some point it became an involuntary response that he couldn't then change. Um, and, and so, but he never would have wound up in the position where he might say that inappropriately if he hadn't first made choices to start saying it. Um, and those choices are ones he can be held accountable for if you're looking for what is the morality of his actions. And that's part of the reason Aristotle wants to look at a whole life, right? Mm -hmm. like, don't just look at what did um, the general do uh, when the troops were fighting, blah, 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 blah. Look at the whole course of choices that he'd done, not just across the whole military campaign, but all the way through his life. Only by doing that can you tell what type of person he is rather than just what he did that time. Because we all act against our nature sometimes. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. It's interesting. I've been reading a biography of a general lately, and it's it's very interesting how you can see when you look at his whole life, mm. it's about PGT Beauregard, who was a Confederate general, who's not mm. one of my favorite people, which is why I'm reading it. I think it's very interesting. But he was a very impulsive man. Mm. His own life, he would often fly off the handle. You know, he'd get very, his pride would get very offended and he'd write a million letters to a million different people, very strongly worded, you know. And But the way he made decisions on the battlefield very much mirrored that. Yeah. So he was habituated into this kind of, flying off, you know, something happens and he's a million miles down the road, even though he hasn't really done the work uh, kind of <laughs> to plan diligently. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's data. The, the action is data. Yeah. And you can't, that's why you can't look at just one thing that a person does. You have, you do have to consider uh, a number of factors because there may be things in the context where they even perhaps mistakenly, but you know, they're trying to act towards a certain end. So based on the information they have, they do something and, and looking back, we might say, well, that was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. But, Oh, go ahead. Well, and even to the other way, if you have an, a wicked person, um, a wicked person might act, do an act that seems not only just, but even selfless in the moment, because they've got their eyes on a greater advantage. They're going to get from it down the line. And you wouldn't consider that to be a just act, even though it corresponds with what you would expect a just man to do in that same situation. The the unjust judge who hears the widow's uh, case in the <laughs> Gospels, uh, it, just so that she'll leave him alone. Right, that's exactly yeah, right. He does he does the right thing, but it's only a, it's only for convenience. And what's really powerful about this, um, even today is that if you start examining your own life morally in this way, it will take you apart, right? Because so much of the, but I did the right thing in our lives is, yeah, but you did it for the wrong reason. Or you did it, even if you did it for the right reason, maybe you also did it. For, I think that's where, where we live is that we, even when we do things for the right reasons, we also do them for the wrong reasons, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we give the person on the street corner 
uh, food or water or money because we genuinely want to help them and we want to show them um, compassion of common humanity and that they have dignity and this sort of a thing. But we also do it because someone's in the car we want to impress and we're less likely to do it if that person's not in the car with us, you know. Yeah. Um, all of those types of things that, that go on. And so Aristotle is going to say, yeah, it is complicated evaluating whether um, an, an action is moral, whether a person is good or just or not. And, and it should be, right? I mean, morality shouldn't be simple and easy and straightforward because the world we live in is in a complex, it's a complex place. And we can't approach it the same way all the time. We can't approach everything as if they're nails. Hmm. So then this raises, a, I think, a, a maybe a pragmatic question, which is how, how do we acquire virtue? And we've talked a little bit about this. I mean, the obvious answer is you do virtuous actions. But that does raise, I think, the question in light of what you just said, that, it's, that it is complicated and that there seems to be more to it. And I don't know, I, 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 as we were reading it, that was kind of one of the things that stuck out to me i mean i you know um at the church potluck it's very easy to let other people go in front of you but mm -hmm. then that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something virtuous because you could be thinking well i'm the most humble person here at this church <laughs> potluck you know so you're actually in your humility there is pride you know um yeah. so it, it it seems like it's more complicated than just performing an action that is virtuous so I don't know and, what would you what would your thoughts be on that based on uh, a reading of this text. I have two thoughts, and I don't know if I remember the second one by the time I finished the first one. Um, but the 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 first thought is, you know, I, I want to go back to that idea that we're judging a whole person's life and not just these individual moments, because I think we tend to put so much pressure. We being twenty first century Westerners, we put so much pressure on doing the right thing in the individual moments that it really feels like, and that's what we're judged by, right? I mean, we cancel people for choices they've made in particular situations, and we don't take the entire context of their life into account. Now, what I mean by taking the context of their life into account is not excusing the action. I'm mean, talking about actions that are clearly inexcusable. But at the end of the day, you know, at the end of a life, actually, not the end of the day, but at the end of a life, how are we going to judge that person? Is every person going to be judged only by the worst things they ever did? Because that's how we act when we cancel people, right? We say that this becomes the defining thing about you and nothing else you ever do can ever matter more than that you did this thing, right? What Aristotle is offering us is a different vision. He's saying, actually, um, you're going to mess up and you're going to do something really terrible and really horrible. But what you need to do is you need to respond to that by um, pouring goodness at it, right? Make Choose for your life to be about something other than that. So that at the end of your life, when we look at the whole course of all that you've done, that will appear very small, right? In the moment that I kill someone, I become a murderer. Now, I can, I, and I'll always be a murderer in the sense that I will always be someone who has murdered. But I, I do not have to always be a murderer in the sense of being someone who continues to murder. I don't have to become a serial killer, right? And um, whether murder is the most important thing about my life um, is going to be judged by looking at all the other things in my life. And if I'm able to turn that, to turn away from that um, and to focus my life on other things and focus my life on giving and on restoring and on healing and that sort of a thing, it's possible 
and Aristotle would be among the people that you might find someone who would say that wasn't the most important thing about his life. Yeah, he killed that dude and that was terrible and he ought to have suffered greatly for it and he has suffered greatly for it. And perhaps he has yet to suffer greatly for it at the last judgment. But when it comes down to that last judgment, that's not the only thing the judge is looking at. He's not just looking for the worst things you've done. Right. So I think that's that's very freeing in the sense that it allows you not to get stuck on mm. any one bad moral action to keep because what can happen is there's a kind of despair that can sink in where you think, well, why bother being good going forward? I've messed things up so badly that um, I might as well continue. As Macbeth says, I'm in blood stepped in so far were I to wade no more returning were as tedious as go or right. Mm. It's like Maybe, but if you return, you're back on this side of that ocean of blood. If you keep going, you wind up on the wrong side. And then the other thing, I think this is the second thing that I wanted to say, is um, like you said, we touched upon it already. Um, it's it's sort of brilliant in its simplicity, which is you want to be a better person. You want to be a good, moral, noble, excellent, virtuous person. Act like you're that person, hmm. right? If necessary, pretend to be that person. Um, there's a wonderful fairy tale about a, a hideously ugly man who puts on a mask um, that makes him look beautiful. And he goes around acting like the confident, beautiful man instead of the evil villain that he is. And, he's, and, this, and he was a murderer and a thief and all these things. And he does this for a really long time and he meets a beautiful woman and they fall in love and they're about to get married. And at the wedding, uh, this person comes up who knows who he really is. And he says, I'm gonna show you the true face of the man you're about to marry. And they rip off the mask. And underneath, he's as beautiful as the mask was because he's been acting in that way for so long that he has changed into inwardly what he was pretending to be outwardly. I think that's a very Aristotelian fairy tale. Yes, yes. I. It seems like one of the problems that we're touching on here is is that there can be a distance or a disparity between one's internal disposition and the external action. So mm. I give the poor person, you know, who's begging money, which is objectively or sort of from the outside, that's a good action, but mm -hmm. I'm doing it inside because I want to impress someone or because I want to feel better about myself or something like that. You know, it's very egocentric. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really take away from the that the action itself is. I mean, it's a, a good thing. You know, we should always we always uh, giving alms is good. Yeah. Biblically, I think there is a helpful corollary in this, which is a lot of the Old Testament prophetic literature. Mm. You know, the, Israel often gets indicted for going through the motions. Mm. So, like Isaiah chapter one, God says, "I don't want your fasts and your sacrifices and your assemblies because you're you're." You're doing them and then you're going out and you're, you know, exploiting the poor and you're you're yeah. treating people badly and you're going after false gods. And it's, you know, the cognitive dissonance is too much. In other words, this disparity is a problem. Yeah. But I don't think that in any I was just talking about this with one of the aspirants at our church. I don't think that there's any evidence that the solution to the problem is to stop doing <laughs> the fasts, the sacrifices or the worship assemblies. That's right but rather that the internal and the external need to come together so that the person becomes unified. Mm -hmm. Because one of the problems, I think uh, St. Augustine is a great example of someone who articulates this very clearly, that the problem is that we're disintegrated, that we yeah. are aimed at a million different things and there's this kind of internal conflict. Yeah. But by going through the external actions, those can be a way in which the internal becomes ordered 
So it's not that I stop fasting. It's that I should recognize the significance of what fasting means. Or it's not that I should stop sacrificing. It's I should represent, I should understand what that sacrifice is supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And by going, by going through the action or the liturgy or whatever, the habit of doing it, then that will over time wear a new rut in the soul or yeah. wear down that, that rock that is the stony heart, you know, it'll, it'll wear it down eventually. Um, yeah. and so, um, so it's not a, an either or so much as it is a both and that in doing this external thing, I might not feel it or I might be I might recognize in myself when I'm handing the you know person who needs money money that I'm I want myself to feel better. But that that becomes then a, a moment for correction and for moving forward and intention to do better. Yeah, that's right. And in other words, to just to restate what you're saying. Um, if you find that there's a disconnect between the goodness of the outward action and the foulness of your heart or intention, match match the foul to the good, right? Right, exactly. Bring your heart along to the good thing. Um, and and if, if for some reason you got into the opposite situation, which is hard to, harder to imagine, where your your heart was good on the inside, but your outward actions are bad, well then then you'd match the outer action. But whatever's the good thing that's the one you want to affirm right and so the happiness is found the the intellectual activity that's required for a man to be virtuous and therefore arrive at happiness is to take um, a good and really the highest good of which he is capable as his end Mm -hmm. and let that let all of his actions be directed by that right and if you do that then internal and external are going to converge on that good end that you're aiming at. And we find out late in the, I almost said dialogue, late in the book, that what that activity is, that end that can drive us to the right place is contemplation. Yeah. It's something that is actually not human. It's more than human. It's divine. But humans have a share in the divine because they can contemplate and therefore it is the most important thing for humans to do is to contemplate like that's the big punchline of the nicomachean ethics is contemplation is how you're going to become a happy person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which maybe another episode at some point uh we can pick a text that has to do with christian reading mm. um, of scripture because that's the end of christian reading is is the, that contemplation stage, um, which can be very elusive and very hard to find, but it is ultimately what everything else is ordered to. Yeah, that's right. Father Wesley and I both have interests in medieval writers who are very eloquent and uh, insistent on just this point. Uh, but it's fascinating because one of the things that comes across a lot in discussions in you know the, of the Western canon is uh, this division this this uh, dichotomy um between um theory and practice uh, you're going to be more devoted to theory are you going to be more devoted to practice and here the nicomachean ethics which is kind of ground zero for western thinking about praxis about how we act ethically and which as we said at the beginning is given to a family member with the aim of making them a more virtuous person, a very practical end, it's, it, it winds up at contemplation, which we normally would say belongs to theory, mm-hmm. right? And so this right here at the very beginning of the stream, we see that it's, it's wrong to divide the stream, right? right. Um, because 
theory and practice are um, mutually, uh, they, they, they relate to one another in a mutually supporting way. And the point of acting well is to think well, and the point of thinking well is to act well. Yeah, yeah. This is why I like practically, I think this can work out in a number of ways, but some an emphasis I've been sort of trying to harp on with myself is it's not about how many books you read, but how you read them. Mm. You know, there's that tendency like Goodreads, love Goodreads, a great way to see, you know, what other people are reading and find out more about books. But you set, you know, a yearly goal for how many books you want to read. And so it's like every year I want to read a little more than I read last year. Mm. Is that really the best for me it not necessarily right because yeah. then it's very easy to stay in the world of theory and i'm not really asking myself well how does this book impact what i do how i live etc yeah and less um, is more that that was a hard lesson i had to learn in graduate school and and you know people try to teach me it right from the very beginning no less is more less is more and i was like uh no more is more <laughs> Duh. right right it's right there in the name actually <laughs> yes it can be easier um but um and so you know i go i, I take and in a, in a program where we're meant to take three courses a semester i would take five courses a semester right because more is more and i've got to get fit it all in and all the things and, and whatnot and I'm, and I'm doing all this going crazy writing all these different papers and stuff like this and finally towards the end of after about four years of doing that towards the end of my coursework i finally just took three classes one semester and it was brilliant yeah. Because when something came up that I was interested in that wasn't part of the course, I had time to follow up on it and do additional outside reading and dig deeper and that sort of a thing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, less is more. They were yeah. right. Yep. That's kind of one of the, I think, theses behind this show and the way that we do it in this format, where the goal is not to pump out as many episodes as possible, mm -hmm. but to actually sit with the text for a time and then have hopefully a fruitful conversation between me and you, but also with our larger kind of classical mind community of, yeah, let's all sit with this for a while and and kind of have an ongoing conversation rather than, okay, we're done with Nick and McKean ethics. We better do the next episode in a week. You know, right. um, that's just not, that's just not our speed. And I, I appreciate that because we do get, I think a better, it's a better habit in terms of engaging these, these texts. And one of the things that we, this is a great time to say this, um, because this is one of the um, sticks that I'm on lately that I really need more people talking about this. Um, there's a, there's an, a, an epidemic of reading. Um, our understanding of what reading is like is diseased. And the um, carrier for the disease is reading lists. Mm. And the, the disease presents um, with as a, the symptoms are that you are concerned about the number of books you read and you're concerned to um, have read the important books, right? And that's the real thing is the have read disease. Now, oh, now I have read the Nicomachean Ethics. Next, I'm going to read Julius Caesar so that I will have read Julius Caesar. And the idea would be that, you know, it's this list and you check it off and you're done with it and you put it away. Right. And you never have to, there's no reason to ever pick up a book again in that kind of a way of approaching things. And in fact, there's great motivation not to because the list never stops. It keeps growing and growing and growing. The more you read, the more you want to read, which is good. Um, that's that entire thing is wrong and is diseased. Books are not meant to have been read, books are meant to be read. Right. I mean, how many times through the Divine Comedy is this for you now? It's not your first. The second is this third. What, what is it? I think 
third sort of i mean i've i've been in different parts of it at different times but yeah probably probably third yeah and what's your favorite book I mean, that's a terrible question what's one of your favorite books doesn't uh, matter in, in context in the divine comedy or you mean just well, in general one in, of my favorite in, in books life. it could be a children's book you know whatever you want um gosh uh fathers and sons by ivan turgenev mm. one of my how favorites many, how many times have you read that mm, i think three right see and yeah. then like you start going back to stuff that you've loved since you were a kid like the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Right. Potter. Like how many times have we read the Chronicles of Narnia? Like Land the Witch in the Wardrobe, single digits, double digits? Probably single digits, but definitely more than three. Yeah. Um, Lord of the Rings, definitely more than three. Right. Like listening to the Silmarillion right now on audiobook, yeah, mm -hmm. it's one of those series you always go back to. Yes, and that's and that's the thing, right? We go back to the things that we love, right? It's not like you go on a date with your the woman who will be your wife and then like it goes great and it's awesome and, you, and you're like you're gonna go out with her again no 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 not really why not well like, i've gone out with her like it's yeah. done we finished it right no no you keep going back but the books and the, the stories whether it be books movies whatever songs that we love we put them on repeat we go back to them again and again we come back to them at different times in our lives right it's been too long since i've read this i have to get back to it also with the books that form us we go back to those things again and again that's what reading is supposed to be like a first reading a book for the first time is beginning a friendship with someone. Mm -hmm. And that friendship is no sane person would see a friend once and then say, I've had enough. That's all I need to do. Right. That person is not a friend. If you don't want to see them again, um, we have to keep coming back again and again to these things. And that's what, you know, father Wesley and I love about talking about these books with one another is, you know, first of all, in the other person, we find someone who delights to talk about books like we do. And so, you know, we, whether you guys like the episodes or not, we're having a blast. Okay. Um, <laughs> we win no matter what. But the other thing is because, um, you know, the, at the end of one of these discussions, what's my ideal hope for what a listener would do at the end of this episode? My ideal outcome would be they would go back to the book that we just talked about and start reading it again. Yeah. Right. Because when I really get talking about a book with somebody, I can't wait to the next time I can read it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mentioned friendship in that little tirade. Which yes. And Aristotle has some things to say about friendship, and I'm deeply interested in what he has to say about friendship because I find uh, some of it a bit scandalizing and, and, and also tantalizing at the same time. Okay. What do you find so fascinating about his take on friendship? So over here in book eight, he talks about friendship, and it's a very nuanced account of friendship, right? He, yes. he understands that there's different reasons you might be friends with someone, and he divides all the different kind of friendships into, you know, whether you want to get, um, you know, pleasure out of the person or whether they're useful to you or whatever else. And he goes through and says which one's the best ones. Then he also even addresses what happens when there's inequality in friendship, right? Um, and that inequalities in friendships can happen. But so I say if we were to go to book eight, and this is 1158, be about 23 and all friendships which involve the superiority of one of the partners so they're unequal for some reason whether i'm above you in social status or in economic status or whatever else the affection must be proportionate the affection between them must be proportionate the better and more useful partner should receive more affection than he gives and similarly for the superior partner in each case for when the affection is proportionate to the merit of each partner, there is in some sense equality between them, uh -huh. right? He wants to say friendship can only happen where there's equality. And so if you have an inequality, that inequality has to be leveled by an unequal uh, affection, 
right? I owe, you know, you're always, you're rich and I'm not, and you're always paying for stuff and whatnot. And so I owe you a greater, greater duties of friendship and greater duties of adherence and loyalty and these sorts of things because of that. And that will re-even us out, right? Mm. Very fascinating. But there's a limit to that. There comes a point beyond which um, the, the disproportion, the inequality has grown so great that affection can't even it out again. Um, and the clearest example of this is the gods. Hmm. You can't be friends with the gods, Aristotle says, because the gods can get nothing good from you. They don't need anything from you. And therefore, you can't be useful to them. You can't give them pleasure. There's just You can't be a friend according to any of the things that uh, the ways in which he says one can be a friend. And then he says something that's very, very interested me since I first heard about it. This is on uh, 1159. Um he says, the, the, the question then arises whether or not, 1159A5, whether or not we wish our friends the greatest of all goods, namely to be gods. For if that wish were fulfilled, there would no longer be our friends. And since friends are something good, we would have lost this good, right? So here's the, here's the situation. Father Wesley has got the opportunity to be... Um, uh, for apotheosis, not just to be deified in a sort of Eastern Christian sense, but actually, you know, not theosis, which is to become a god in the salvific sense, but apotheosis, which means to stop being what he was before mm -hmm. in order to be God. It's what happened with Hercules and Castor and Pollux and, and a few others. Um, it's the dream, right? And I see the road by which Father Wesley can accomplish this, but he doesn't. Now, as a friend, should I show him the road to his godhood or should I not? You would think that if the goal of a friend, which Aristotle himself has said, he'll even he'll rehash it right here while I was just reading. He says, if our assertion is correct that a man wishes his friend good for his friend's sake, okay? So a friend wishes for goods for their friend. I wish good for Father Wesley for Father Wesley's sake, not for my sake. It seems like then it's obvious that I should wish him to become a god, and the duty of friendship would be to reveal to him the pathway to his godhood. Not because I think he's going to reward me when he's a god with you know lavish riches and a kingdom and that sort of a thing, but because it's good to be a god, right? It's good to be the king, and I want the good for Father Wesley. But look where Aristotle goes with that passage. He says. Um, the friend, accordingly, if, if our assertion is correct that a man wishes his friend's good for his friend's sake, the friend would have to remain the man he was. Consequently, one will wish the greatest good for his friend as a human being. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the conclusion is you should not want your friends to become gods. You should wish them not to become gods. And that seems weird because it seems like it's about me that I would not want Father Wesley to become a god and not about him. I'm looking at my own good. I don't want to lose my friend and not at his good, which is to be a god. It does seem like, because uh, I agree, I, I, at first blush, it's like, what the heck? Why, Junius, why are you standing in my way of becoming this great uh, being? But I, I do think that there's something there, especially maybe, again, on a more pragmatic level, where if... I am supposed to hope that you become something you're not. Mm -hmm. That that has a kind of perfectionistic tendency in it that would actually prevent me, I think, from being your friend in the with as you are. Mm. 
In other yes. words, I'm I'm now setting the, the bar so high. <laughs> yeah, why aren't you a god, Junius? You know, I, I I only really want to be friends with gods, and you're just a guy. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think about it. But but that could preclude, I think, any real friendship from happening. It's right. it's kind of the same uh, tendency that we noted in uh, Dostoevsky when we did Brothers K, where it's like, well, the more I love humanity in general, the less I like specific people. <laughs> you know, we build up this this expectation. Well, I can, I, you know, this friendship can turn you into something you're not. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not how friendship really works. I mean, yeah. it certainly should be for our betterment, mutual edification, and and that sort of thing. But that's perfecting who we are, not becoming something we're not yeah what well, one of the um solutions people try to give this passage is to say that um they appeal to another principle in aristotle's metaphysics which is that um personal identity cannot survive substantial change right so if you think about the fairy tale in which the prince is turned into a fog by the evil witch and then the fog is kissed by a princess and the, and the fog turns back into the prince according to aristotle's metaphysics that's not what happens what happens is the witch destroys the prince and creates a fog that happens to have the prince's memories and personality, but isn't the prince. It's a new thing. And then when the princess kisses the fog, she destroys the fog and creates a prince who is not the fog, although he has the fog's um, memories and personality, and is also not the original prince because he's gone. It's a new prince that happens to have all of the uh, same attributes as the original prince. So if that's true, then it's impossible for a man to become a god because that's the destruction of that man and the creation of a new god. And as your friend, I don't want my father Wesley to be destroyed. Therefore, I would not wish for him to enter into that process. That's one of the solutions people give to it. It's clever, and I like how it draws upon other parts of Aristotle to try to explain what he might mean here. However, it doesn't really sit well with me in terms of how the passage reads. Because mm -hmm. what's interesting is that he, he presents this as if it's meant to be a conclusion that follows from what he's saying, right? Um, uh, if that wish were fulfilled, they would no longer be our friends. And since our friends are something good, we would have lost this good. Accordingly, if our assertion is correct that a man wishes his friends good for his friend's sake, the friend would have to remain the man he was. Consequently, one will wish the greatest good for his friend as a human being. And that's that's fascinating to me because I don't see that the accordingly follows. And so I think there's actually got to be a couple of premises missing from Aristotle's mm. um, thing here. And because with the consequently winds up with, um, we wished our highest good for him as a man, then it, it, it does seem to have to, I think you and this other uh, strategy are right in pointing to there's got to be something about, remember, the, the highest good for each thing is relative to the type of thing that it is. And so it's it's not primarily, I don't think, contrary to the position I was saying a second ago, it's not so much the fact that it's metaphysically impossible for a man to become a god, because Aristotle was writing to a culture that has lots of stories of this happening. It's, it would be interesting not to, he has to do more work to motivate that. No one's going to just accept a few people. No, no one who's not his student already is going to just accept that. Um, but rather it has to do with the fact that you're making a category error, mm -hmm. right? The highest good for a dog is not to become a man. The highest good for a dog is to be a good boy, right? <laughs> Likewise, the highest good for a man is not to become a god. The highest good for a man is to become a virtuous man. Right. And if the friend aims at um, the end for which you are naturally suited, not the highest end that is logically imaginable. Mm. So in that way, again, it still feels counterintuitive. I, I still don't know that 
I think if I were presented with that choice, I would want you to become a God and I would, I would not stand in the way of you becoming a God, whatever that means. Um, but as so long as I, you know, could see that it wouldn't be bad for you. If I thought it would be bad for you, then it wouldn't be the duty of friendship to do that. Given but, how the Greek gods act, it probably would be pretty bad. for Yeah. You. Right. Maybe there's that too. You, know, <laughs> you don't want to be like them. Um, but there, but it, I can, I can see how Aristotle gets there. And I think it's a fascinating claim. Yeah. There's this, and it does ground a discussion that I think is worth having in friendship. And I do this a lot when I teach um, the Hobbit is to say, you know, it means that what it means to be a good friend may not at all look like what you would think it would on the surface, right? It may look like taking the Arkenstone from Thor and Oakenshield and giving it to his enemies, mm. even though that feels like a betrayal of the highest order when in the act of giving it to his enemies, Bilbo calls it the heart of Thor and Oakenshield. Yeah. Typically, I try not to give my friends hearts to their enemies, but this passage points out that there may be a time when the duty of friendship requires even that. That's right. Well, and it, it goes back to the point we were making earlier that sometimes these virtues look different in different contexts, but it's still the virtue of friendship, even though in a vacuum, one might say, well, that's not really a good thing Bilbo did. But in the yeah. context, it it demands it. Now, I'll be yeah. interested. I think we should revisit the conversation about friendship next month when we do Julius Caesar, because mm. you could you, you actually kind of have this exact issue going on, right? There's this yeah. attempt at deifying Caesar into God, and so Brutus and Cassius, rather than um, rather than preventing that from happening, while allowing Caesar to remain what he is, unman him. Yeah, right. They murder him. So <laughs> there's a substantial change in either direction, and in some ways, you might argue that in in killing him, they actually allow for the deification of him. So there's the kind of interesting kind of turns this on its head. You know that, that that certainly was the historical outcome of it was his deification came about not really in spite of, but in many ways because of his murder. Yep, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's. It, it it will be interesting. We can perhaps revisit this. What what are they? What are if they're really his friends? What are they to do in that situation? Yeah, that's good. I like that. So a little teaser for our next book. Excellent. Are there any other uh, topics that you wanted to uh, discuss here in Nicomachean Ethics? I, I think I'm good though. I think we hit the big ones. This is a deep book, uh, and this is, it is. This repays a lot of careful, slow reading. There's a lot there. Um, and we definitely made the decision ahead of time not to try to cover everything, which would, would really be foolish, but just to take you through the sort of the three big pictures, right? Happiness, virtue, and friendship. Um, but one of the nice things about reading Aristotle, if you haven't read him yet, sometimes it can feel um, very dry and very difficult to read. And I, I had a hard time reading Aristotle when I was first started learning to read Aristotle. Um, but I, I came across the suggestion that maybe these were not written to be books, but they're more like lecture notes. Um, yeah. And that when he actually gave his, when he actually taught, it might've been a lot more fleshed out and a lot more compelling, a lot more rhetoric to it and whatnot, much more like we see in Plato. And that was kind of helpful to me because then it's, if you think about it almost as like, there's just these series of gems that are just getting dropped in each of these little sections. It can be helpful to go through that way. So, you know, encourage everyone to take the time to really dig into this text and, Get out what gems you can and write us about it. Put it in the comments and let us know what gems you're finding in the text. Please. And again, uh, go back to what you were saying earlier. This is, I think, one text that is a great one to revisit. I, all the texts we read are good to revisit, but this one may be more than some of the others, especially if you are um, interested in self-improvement. Uh, don't 
maybe go buy the newest fad book about the topic, but, you know, pull out Nick McKean ethics, read his description of the various virtues. Which ones do you lack? Which excesses are you attracted to? Which uh, deprivations do you recognize in your, in your behavior? And then, you know, maybe come up with some practical strategies to address those and then revisit the text again later. See, yeah. see how you've come, how far you've come and where else you need to work. So further up and further in. <laughs> Fantastic. Excellent. Well, um, Junius, do you have any end notes uh, in terms of uh, Nick McKean ethics? I've given the game away, away already, but I, I like the Hobbit for my end note this time to, to read the Hobbit as a test of friendship according to, but the friendship between Bilbo and Thorin according to Nicomachean ethics and sort of grade Bilbo and how he's done. Excellent. I love that. I'm currently reading the Hobbit out loud to my five-year-old. So perfect. it works out perfect. Yeah, no, I, and, and I, it's funny because we talk about revisiting the text. I've read it. I've taught it multiple times. Mm. And uh, even now I um, am picking up things I, you know, have maybe not quite fully appreciated about it since I think there is something about reading it out loud too, that changes yeah. it in terms of engaging. Um, you notice different things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been, been really fun. And we got the edition that has the art that Tolkien drew by hand. Oh, that's so, so good. that's really cool. Yeah. I really, really, it's a beautiful book. Just the way they produced it was amazing. And then having those illustrations in there is really adds to it mm. for me. Um, I think I will be very boring and say that uh, the Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas would be a mm. great place to go. Um, if you, if you like the way Aristotle lays things out, um, Thomas Aquinas engages with Aristotle quite a bit, and um, and there are many overlaps. But I, I appreciate the way that he really sort of baptizes Aristotle. So um, if especially if you're a person of faith, I think it's it's a thing to um, to to go back to. And of course, Aquinas, if you really want to do a deep cut, has his own commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics, which I have on the shelf behind me, which is quite thick. And uh, yeah, it's <laughs> line by line. <laughs> this book is already thick enough. Uh, you try to read it with Aquinas, and that's probably a year-long project. But I think um, I, I think the way he articulates virtues in the Summa is helpful. It's it's kind of a crash course because it's a little maybe shorter, but um, mm. but he is thorough, and and I appreciate the evolution of the discussion in terms of things like intellectual, um, uh, uh, cardinal, and theological virtues, and and those those distinctions and the relationships that exist between them, and on all that. So that's that's I think what I would recommend next. If you if you like this, then go to go to Aquinas and see how he treats the same subject. Nice. Excellent. Well, listeners, our next book will be Julius Caesar. We're doing that in conversation with uh, someone else. We're going to bring in a, a guest for that. And hopefully moving forward, we'll have a few more guests as well. Um, I think it'll be good to, to have a third wheel in some of these conversations. Um, I think uh, we can learn a lot from, from those that we'll bring on. So we'll look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, keep reading.